Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, uh, describe your desk here at work for us. Well, today it's a little messy. I have some stacks of paper. I have a tiger. I have Cloaca Ave, my sign. Uh, and, uh, I don't know, just a bunch of other myriad objects there. Yeah? Yeah, I've got a, a beautiful leaf, uh, photos, uh, a Ginsu knife. Yeah? Yeah. You? Um, well, mine's a lot neater now. Like, we, we moved, uh, uh locations shortly after, uh, my son arrived. So, uh, for the longest, my desk was pretty messed up because it was just like a pile of art that I wanted to somehow stick to our art resistant surfaces, mm-hmm. um, uh, around our, uh, our desk area, like the wall. It's not really a cubicle, but just, I'm lucky enough to have two surfaces, like the wall in front of me and the wall beside me. But it's, it's, it's made in a way to where you can't, it's really difficult to stick things to. It's true. And, uh, and the only way you can really do it is like a, this, this sort of complex system where you use, uh, uh, pins and, um, and tape at the same time and kind of like, sew your art into the wall and it takes forever so i think holly's doing that yeah it's really the only way to do it so for the longest my desk was just like piles of notes for podcast books strewn about a monitor that i didn't have hooked up yet um and uh you know it's just just awful i saw it as a fortress of papers and books like you were (laughs) walling everybody out i know it it probably looked pretty bad with the monitor too because the monitor was was not hooked up and it was like between me and jonathan strickland as if I was never going to hook up this monitor, and I was going to use it slowly as a divider. <laughs> and uh, and so I'm glad to have that hooked up so that people can see, oh, he's not just a it's jerk. It's not here. just defensive clutter. Yeah, he was he was going to get there, get, go somewhere with that at some point. So. Yeah. Well, and we are going to talk today about spaces, orderly spaces, chaotic spaces. How do they affect us? And I will say that I do like a nice orderly space, but when I'm working on a project, things spiral sort of everywhere. And that makes sense to me because I'm referencing a lot of different things. But I might be an order Muppet. An order Muppet. Okay, this is the idea that, of course, we have chaos and order, the two great uh, movements in life, right? Mm-hmm. A, a movement towards order, a movement a- away from order. Uh, and, of course, to quote Wallace Stevens, the poet, a violent order is a disorder, and a great disorder is an order, and these two things are one. So it's a complicated topic. There's a lot of back and forth. But uh, a simplified way is to indeed look at Jim Henson's The Muppets and divide them into agents of order and agents of chaos. That's right. Dahlia Lithwick, writing for Slate, talked about this, this idea that you either fall into one of two categories, chaos Muppet, which are uh, out of control, emotional, volatile. They tend toward, this is her saying this, they tend toward the blue and fuzzy. They make their way through life in a swirling maelstrom of food crumbs, small flaming objects, and the letter C. We're talking about Cookie Monster, Ernie, <laughs> Grover, Gonzo, Dr. Bunsen, Honeydew, Animal. And she says, Zelda Fitzgerald. Here's here's a historical figure who was a chaos Muppet. Ah, okay. But on the other side, you've got your order Muppet. And she said she's thinking about Bert, Scooter, Sam the Eagle, Kermit, of course, right? Yes. And the blue guy who is parentally harassed by Grover at restaurants. She says the order Muppet, every man, that blue guy. They tend to be neurotic, highly regimented, averse to surprises, and may sport monstrously large eyebrows. Uh, she said they, they represent the responsibility of running the world, and uh, they feel weighed down by it, but they secretly revel in the knowledge that they keep things afloat. Okay, yeah. Which are you? Well, it's, we were talking about this earlier, and I'm still struggling to come up with an answer because 
I'm definitely not the uh, the guy who threw the swordfish. Like that's like to, to me like he and uh, an animal are right up there like the extremes of chaos muppet. Gonzo too, really. They are they are right up there at the, the threshold of 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 utter chaos. And then of course on the other end you have uh, Sam the Eagle. I guess would be like the most orderly muppet because uh, Kermit will wave his arms around a bit, but but Sam is a rock and he's going to stick to it. Uh, <laughs> No matter what, and I, and I feel like I'm maybe a little more towards the middle. So it's hard to hard to. I mean, maybe some of the members of the band were a little more balanced and laid back, but I don't think I'm uh, don't, I'm Doctor T. Know. I see you as both because I have seen you as the Chaos Muppet when you're working and you're in the middle of something, mm-hmm. but I have also seen you as the Order Muppet who every six months goes around the office and says, why is all this junk around? And mm. cleans things up and you get rid of all the the jars of urine and whatnot <laughs> hanging around. So well, I see both. Huh. Well, maybe I'm maybe I'm kind of like the count because the count is uh, there's yes yeah, so the count one two three ha uh-huh. he's because uh, he's orderly in a very you know, he's all about the numbers mm-hmm. but this his obsession with the numbers tends to disrupt everything else in his life so I feel I feel like maybe I'm not saying that's a one to one comparison but I feel like I'm kind of that kind of mix where there there are parts of me that are very orderly but sometimes those get in the way of other stuff and, and causes disorder over here. I'm kind of in flux, I guess. Well, I'm with Dahlia Lithwick. She says that she is a faux chaos Muppet. Yeah. But at the center is, is order. Well, what, what about you? That's what I'm saying. I'm you, with, you, I'm with her on that. You're a faux chaos Muppet. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But it also depends on the situation and, um, my environment as, and everybody's environment as we'll discuss. But the thing is, those chaos Muppets, they always get a bad rap, right? Because yes. of the surroundings, they don't look so good, and people perceive them as, you know, just sort of layabouts who can't even be bothered to clean up their spaces. And in fact, it brings to mind the broken windows theory. Right. The idea that uh, that the way that you ultimately combat uh, social upheaval and, mm-hmm. and, and, and problems of crime is that you focus on all the little things. You focus on, say, that broken window or some graffiti. Because if the windows are broken, if there's a graffiti on the wall, it's sending this message to everyone else that minor transgressions are okay. Right. And therefore, we can extrapolate that that uh, less minor uh, infractions are okay as well. And then it becomes more and more chaotic. It builds up like kibble. Yeah, like one broken window begets several broken windows, and then all of a sudden you've got mayhem going on. Right. And I think about the Krog Street Tunnel in Atlanta as an example of a graffiti-ridden tunnel, but also an example of extreme creativity. In fact, on any given day, you can pass by this tunnel and see people getting their photograph taken in front of it or making videos in front of it, because ultimately it's this stand-in for an act of creativity. Yeah, it's a graffiti-free zone, and I think about this a lot. Every time I go past it, I I wonder about graffiti-free zones and to what extent, uh, uh, basically what effect they have on creativity, Mm -hmm. because... It's not. It's a situation where suddenly it's not just like a daring uh, graffiti artist can go there and tag, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not just you know somebody throwing up some sort of a gang tag either. It's everybody, even people who would normally not even think about it. Well, the Croc Tunnel does have a good amount of very interesting art, and what I think is interesting about it is that it requires you to stop and take a second look. Yeah, and so that's. Sort of this idea that we're going to look at when we talk about spaces, in particular workspaces, clutter versus order. Yes. All right. So as luck would have it, we have a study that looks at how um, chaotic versus 
uh, clean, neat, and orderly environments affect our productivity, affect our creativity, affect our uh, response to stimuli. Uh, because, uh, again, to your point, we tend to put it in a quick uh, Felix and Oscar odd couple scenario, right? Where one is the slob and one is the orderly individual. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the slob is just, he's just a slob. All he's doing is, com- is, is con- contributing to the comedic environment, but that's about it. Uh, where it's, it's a, this, this study reveals it's a lot more nuanced than that. And it's actually a, a really good study for those of us whose desks get a little bit um, uh, chaotic from time to time. The title of this study is Physical Order Produces Healthy Choices, Generosity, and uh, Conventionality, Whereas Disorder Produces Creativity. It's a 2013 paper from the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. And it's, it, uh, it, it basically revolves around three different experiments involving an orderly work environment and a disorderly work environment. Yeah, and let's just read out the first line because I think this sets the tone. The uh, first line is, order and disorder are prevalent in both nature and culture, which suggests that each environment confers advantages for different outcomes. So it's not so black and white as the order and the chaos Muppets. Yeah, it's not a situation where, all right, we have the orderly Muppets and the chaos Muppets are just tearing down society. Like, mm-hmm. both have survived. Both have uh, ha- are here due to an evolutionary process, so they must both must both be important. Like I, I always come back to the, uh, the the cuttlefish, and about how you have the, the these larger cuttlefish that are mating, and you have the masculine cuttlefish who are all about brute strength and uh, and say and, and just making sure they get their mate that way, and then you have the sneakier, smaller mm-hmm. cuttlefish yeah. who disguise themselves as females. And the the, the ultimate take home there is that cuttlefish evolution uh, has favored both. Styles, both types of cuttlefish, and ultimately both types of cuttlefish are necessary for the uh, the survival of the species. And so we see a similar thing with disorder muppets and order muppets uh, in human society. And you see this in this study, which is so interesting because, as you mentioned, there are three experiments that Kathleen DeVos and uh, the other researchers conducted. And in the first experiment, they randomly assigned a group of college-age students to spend time in adjacent office spaces. One was tidy. The other was cluttered with papers and other work-related detritus. And the students spent their time filling out questionnaires that were unrelated to the study. So the students didn't know really why they were there. After 10 minutes, they were told they could leave, and they were offered an apple or a chocolate bar. Okay, so those students who sat in the orderly office were twice as likely to choose the apple than those who sat amid the chaotic mess of papers. In addition... When the participants were presented with the opportunity to donate to a charity, those placed in the orderly room donated more of their own money. Interesting. Okay, so what's coming out of this, the pro, I guess you could say, for the orderly room here is that we were talking about more civic-minded behavior, more generous and conscientious, at least in terms of their diets. Yes. You know, they're, they're minding their P's and Q's. Now, what strikes me about this experiment is it, I, I inevitably draw back to our, our podcast about symbols and the power of symbols and the idea, too, about uh, enclosed cognition, that our, our clothing is a kind of symbol that informs how we behave and how we carry ourselves. And here we see a physical environment that is a symbol for order, a symbol for what is expected of us, uh, a symbol for cleanliness. And that kind of translates into our mind in terms of cleanliness of, uh, of ethics, cleanliness of of our uh, of our of our dietary habits and uh, and and just an interesting insight into how spaces control our behavior. So yeah, back to the broken window theory. If you're in that room that's cluttered and messy, apparently nobody has been paying attention. Yeah. You could eat that chocolate bar. You don't need to give that much money to charity, right? Yeah, um, it it also reminds me of the Panopticon. 
You know, because because the panopticon is, of course, a structure of order. And if you if things are disorderly, then you're you're thinking, well, I guess nobody's watching. It doesn't it doesn't matter. But if everything is lined up, if everything seems to be uh, in this heightened state state of order, then you also feel like you're more uh, responsible for your actions. Okay, so if you out there are messy desk dwellers, you probably want to get vindicated here, and you will in the next study. Yeah. So similar deal. Participants were put into either the the, the messy room with uh, with disorder everywhere. Or they were put into the nice, clean, orderly room. But this time, they're asked to come up with new uses for ping pong balls. And uh, and uh, so, and of course, which makes me wonder how many different uses can you find for ping pong balls? They're pretty uh, pretty specific in what you can do with them. But uh, I'll leave that to everyone's imagination. Uh, anyway, the result overall, participants in the messy room uh, came up with the same number of ideas. Uh, for new ways uh, to use these ping pong balls as the clean room counterparts. But their ideas were rated as more interesting and creative when evaluated by the judges. So, independent judges, yeah, by the way. Yeah, independent judges. They, yeah, they were judging the, just like a list of, of ideas, mm-hmm. brainstormed ideas for what you could do with a pair of uh, ping pong balls. <laughs> and it, uh, anyway, so ultimately we're showing here that participants in the disorderly room were more creative. They were able to come up with more novel ideas for what to do with those ping pong balls, which, again, a very limited object to have to brainstorm around than their clean room counterparts. So making this case that creativity or uh, the ability to take a risk in your thought process is also borne out in their final experiment in which they were given the choice of adding a health boost to their lunchtime smoothie that was labeled either new or classic. Guess who chose the classic? Well, the classic is going to be chosen by the clean room people because they want to stick with something that is proven, that is established. Mm-hmm. They're not going to take any risk on some sort of newfangled uh, smoothie additive. That's right. But those in the messy room, they were like, bring it on. Yeah. I want the new formula. Let's go crazy with this smoothie. Just put everything in it. I don't care. Wood chips, vitamins. Ping pong balls. Ping pong balls. Yeah, the ping pong ball smoothie was born of this experiment, I bet. Yeah, so that messy... Environment can actually cause people to feel inspired to break free of tradition, right? To say, okay, that window is broken. Let's, let's do something with that. Let's make some artwork out of it. You know, I feel like at times it even, it even helps to have like a disorder, uh, avatar to turn to, you know, like, yeah. a, like a figure like an animal or a Hunter S. Thompson where you could, you sort you sort of think around them, you, you sort of, a you sort of, live vicariously through them for a few moments, mm-hmm. and it has an overall uh, creative benefit to you. Sort of like a spirit animal? Yeah. Like, you know, you have a spirit animal is animal, and <laughs> you can sort of draw from that. And, uh, and yeah, and, and at least for, for, for a little bit, as you, uh, you, you sort of bask in his glow, you're able to, uh, to feel a little more liberated, a little bit uh, uh, more daring in your ideas. All right, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to uh, try to get at the bottom of why this creativity and sort of inspiration and perhaps even learning are linked to messy environments. All right, we're back. And, you know, just real quick, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, working in disorderly environments, chaotic environments, and I think uh, to coffee shops again, a place where both oh, both yeah. you and I work in coffee shops a lot, and there's a lot of really interesting history about the coffee shop's role in, uh, in creative thought uh, in Western culture. And that is a chaotic environment in, in the best of situations because you have, you have people ordering different drinks, you have all sorts of weird sounds, like, 
of the espresso. You know, God knows what kind of music they're going to play. People right. coming in and out. And if you're lucky, it's a variety of people. So it's, you know, it's beautiful people, ugly people, people, uh, you know, from, from the, the, the top of the ivory tower, people who sleep under the tower, all coming into the same space. And it, it, uh, I, for one, feel that creative energy rolling off of it. Yeah, I mean, you, you uh, talked about the uh, period of enlightenment and this convergence of coffee houses, people turning away from, from the liquor, from the alcohol, and mm-hmm. going toward coffee as a stimulant, and as a result, sharing more of their ideas in this community-centered uh sort of area and the same thing today is going on although a lot of us are wearing headphones you do get exposure to everyone yeah and so it does make sense to me that the chaos of all of that might create these associations that would help you kind of ping pong around until you get these novel associations these novel ideas in fact um it really helps when you're studying a topic. And most people think, oh, when I go to study, it should be in a quiet, orderly room. But there is a New York Times article called Forget What You Know About Good Study Habits. And it says, in a classic 1978 experiment, psychologists found that college students who studied a list of 40 vocabulary words in two different rooms, one windowless and cluttered, and the other modern with a view of the courtyard, did far better on a test than students who studied the words twice in the same room. And later studies have confirmed the, confirmed the finding for a variety of topics. So the idea here is that the outside context is varied, the information is enriched, and this slows down the forgetting process because the more layers of chaos, I guess you could say here, um, the more sort of patterns and uh, things that you have to take in, data, the more points of association your brain makes to whatever it is that you are concentrating on at that very moment. And yeah. so it becomes a stickier memory for people. Yeah, and it lines up kind of well with uh, what Wall Stevens says about the more chaos you have, the chaos kind of becomes an order. And the more order you have, it kind of comes comes more and more chaotic. Now, in talking about learning and chaos, uh, one has to visit the world of the child, of the toddler, of the baby. Because for one thing, as we've touched on many times before, humans are natural-born scientists. Even the very little wee ones, their, uh, their, their brains are open to the world. They're, they have this lamp-like view mm-hmm. of things. They're bringing in all this data. But at the same time, they often seem to be agents of chaos. They seem to, to <laughs> revel in making a mess. They seem to, to know no other way of life than to smear it on the wall, on their face, to eat noodles with their hands, mm-hmm. and, then, and then rub their, their pesto-covered fingers through their hair. I mean, never was there a, a better chaos Muppet than any child, yes. particularly at the age of two. Yeah, they are all animal, uh, in, with maybe a little gonzo or the swordfish dude thrown in uh, for, for that whole period of time. I actually had a professor in college who said that the reason why children love animals and stories mm-hmm. is that they tend to really... Um, align with them and be like, and see themselves as animals, unpredictable and crazy and running around. Yeah. Until they get more of their humanness under their belts. But in this case, there is a study that shores up this idea that this, uh, animal-like behavior is helpful in learning things. Yes, researchers at the University of Iowa studied how 16-month-old children learn words for non-solid objects. So we're talking about stuff like, Oatmeal, glue, peas, uh, peas uh, you know, mucus, uh, <laughs> all the various non-solid objects that may be coming out or going into your child. There's a lot of traffic there. Uh, now, previous research... Peas coming out, for sure. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Out the nose. It, it, it just happens. 
Now, uh, the previous uh, research on this topic has shown that toddlers uh, learn more readily about solid objects because they can easily identify them due to their unchanging size and shape. So an apple is always shaped like an apple, whereas apple sauce, you know, is shaped like whatever the container is. That's basic physics, and, and they get it, and their brain is processing that data. So, but but, but the previous data said, yeah, that the, as far as the oozing stuff, the running stuff, the applesauce, the snot, the peas, the what have you, they were they, they're maybe not as good about identifying that stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, what this study uh, did, the researchers uh, decided to test this. They said, is this really the case, or is this just uh, you know our bias on this uh, particular uh, situation? So they exposed six month, sixteen month olds to fourteen non solid objects. Mostly, it was food and drink stuff like you know applesauce and pudding and, and soup, and then they. Uh, presented the items and gave them made-up words. So, like, uh, some of the examples uh, were, were, like, Dax and Kiv. Non-words used to uh, to identify these various gooey foods. So this is this idea that there to be purity here. So there's yeah. no associations with other words that they might have learned in relation to this. Exactly. Just to test what the sort of information they would retain by interaction with this food. Exactly. And then a minute passes, and they ask the children to identify the same foods in different sizes or shapes. Uh, so, you know, again, different containers, different uh, visible presentation of this non-solid object. And uh, the, the, so this required the youngsters to go beyond relying simply on shape and size and to explore what the substances were made of uh, to make the identification. So you can see where this is going mm-hmm. in terms of how toddlers behave with, with gooey foods and, uh, and how you might interact with them. So, of course, they started prodding it and probing it and mushing it up in their fingers and smearing it on their bodies, throwing it at the walls, watching the noodles uh, worm their way down, right, rubbing it into their heads, just 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 this ecstasy of uh, of of handling the non-solid stuffs. And this tactile experience actually allowed those toddlers to learn to better learn the names of foods when they got to play with them. Yeah. Which I love this idea because all of a sudden everything in that world makes sense. As a parent, when, when your kid is lobbing this, this disgusting, uh, liquefied peas at your face. Yeah. You think, ah, yes, you're learning, my yeah. love. It, you're it, learning. it transforms this moment where they're playing with, uh, with pricey organic applesauce or something, you know, and you're just like, oh, you're wasting your food, you're playing with it, why don't you eat it? And it turns that into this fabulous moment of, oh, you were discovering the universe. Right. You were, you were learning, uh, you were using your, your tactile senses to better identify non-fluid objects. It's, uh, it, it's, it's the kind of study that makes, makes parenting a little easier. It really does. And you sent uh, some pictures of children, toddlers, who were just covered in various kinds of pasta, including spaghetti. Yes. That I think, I don't know how you're going to feel about this. It made me want to jump in there with them. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, see, this is, if you do a search, do like a Google image search for pasta party or toddler pasta party, baby pasta party, you have to play around with it a little bit. You will see images of this where generally it'll consist of like a very small child swimming pool mm-hmm. filled with pasta noodles, cooked pasta noodles. And then there'll be some like naked or maybe diapered or swimsuited babies in there just lounging around with handfuls, just fistfuls of spaghetti, uh, some of it in their mouth, 
uh, you know, fisting it right into their mouth, smearing it on their bodies, noodles hanging off of them. And uh, it can be a bit frightening, especially since uh, some of the photography is good and some of it is a little sketchy looking. Well, you see, you sent that to me, and I'm a really tactile person, mm-hmm. and my first impulse was like, yeah, I want to feel that. I want to feel those spirals <laughs> of, of pasta in my hands, and I want to squish them. <laughs> I actually started to grit my teeth. Uh, well, I tell you, I, I first discovered this uh, phenomena uh, prior to having a son. And at the time, I was like, this is this is grim. This looks like something out of a horror movie. I want no part of this. Now I have to say that my, my thinking on it is, well, if I knew for certain that it would distract him for 30 minutes, I would totally <laughs> fill a bathtub up with, with noodles. Uh so it, your, your perspective on these changes, and certainly knowing what we know now from the study, I, I definitely see the value in it. Now you could go to go a little overboard. You could uh, decide that you're you need to throw a party for every non-fluid object or slightly squishier, gooey thing, mm-hmm. uh, and then you're just you're just going to eat your food budget up. I'm not a fan of the world peas in a kiddie pool. <laughs> I'm going to stick to the pasta myself. Um, but it does give you this idea that you have this uh, this access to this rich patina of associations. If you're trying to figure out the world, if you're trying to explore it and name it, mm-hmm. then the more you can add to that database, including tactile things, that would allow you to know that this noodle is squishy or this noodle is spiral, this noodle is super long and thin, the more you can really get a bead on what this whole kind of human existence thing is. Yeah, and 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 certainly educators are are onto this. You know, you go to a you go to a museum that really has a robust uh, children's area, mm-hmm. or or a children's museum, a hands-on learning center. I mean, that's the kind of stuff they're gonna they're gonna really push. It's not just look at the alligator. Here's a section of uh, of, of an alligator's hide or or a representation of it that you can actually touch. Here is some. Uh, it's one thing to look at uh, at some sea life in the in the aquarium behind glass, but let's actually have a touch tank where you can reach in and actually have that tactile experience. Experience. Right. And uh, and and all of that, uh, you know, makes just so much more sense once you once you really dive into the data here. I think as adults, we should embrace this as well yeah. when we're learning new things. Uh, perhaps not everybody would like no. to see us uh, squishing pasta or other types of adventures, right. but you know. Well, I'm I'm writing something for the website about chemical weapons right now. <laughs> yeah, you should. I'm probably not going to try any yeah. sarin or uh, or mustard gas or or chlorine gas um, on my own just to have that tactile experience because those are certainly um, non-solid objects. I'm glad that you've made that decision not to do that. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, let's call the uh, robot over and uh, catch up on some uh, listener mail. <laughs> All right, this one comes to us from Jerry, uh, who's responding to our Panopticon episode. He says, Hello, Julie and Robert. I just finished listening to your episode on the Panopticon, which I found both interesting and informative. I am in the business of information security, and one aspect of the Panopticon as life concept that may not be obvious to all is that it isn't always a deterrent against antisocial behavior. In fact, it can have quite the opposite effect by inciting a segment of society into antisocial behavior. A great example of that is the hacktivist anonymous movement of the past few years. Now, those movements are all over the map in terms of motivations, but a common focal point is on the loss of privacy, liberties, and so on. As an observer, it's particularly interesting to watch as the establishments they are rebelling against use the very rebellion to justify additional laws which further erode those things that the activists are fighting for in the first place. I also think a key element of the movement is for participants to stay out of the eye of the Panopticon as they carry out protests by using various means of obfuscation, hence the name Anonymous. 
To carry on the analogy, the movement uses the gaps in the Panopticon's vision to hide their antisocial behavior, at least what those involved believe to be gaps, as recent uh, prosecutions would lead one to realize the shadows are not as dark as they might seem. I think uh, that is an important faucet because I strongly suspect that the desire to rebel would be far smaller, if not non-existent, if those involved were carrying out their activities in the public eye, like social disobedience of days gone by. In respect, the Panopticon both drives them to rebel and drives them to do so only from the perceived blind spots of the watchful eye. Anyhow, I thought it was an interesting perspective that didn't come up on the show. Uh, Jerry. I think that Jerry gives us so much to think about here because mostly, and I'm going to play a lot of devil's advocate here, but I think mostly that when we think about anonymous or hacktivists, we tend to think of it more as them bringing transparency to previously hidden information. Uh, But what he is saying is very interesting in the fact that they're not out there front and center uh, actually allows them, people who are not necessarily trying to bring things to transparency, to be a little bit more devious and that they should be out there front and center to actually enact justice. But the question is, do you think that they could? Do you think that the anonymous hacktivists the people who are, you know, on the side of social justice, I should say. Do you think that if they they were there for us to see that they could accomplish the same amount of information is the question? Yeah, I don't know. I have my I have my doubts on that, too. It seems like, you know, to, to his point, the, the days of like pure social disobedience. Um, I mean, you still see examples of it, but it's it, hard to imagine large masses of people engaging in it without mass these days. Of course, he's coming at it from a security perspective. And so it's just really interesting to to bring that to light. So, yeah, if anybody has any thoughts on that, I'd love to know, because this is a very rich argument, pro and con, and Jerry makes some really good points. All right, well, here's another bit of listener mail related to the Panopticon episode. Um, Hi, guys. Sean from Saskatoon here with the uh, with the least to contribute to a conversation that I've ever had, insofar as my primary idea boils down to nothing. Sounds good. Do go on. Uh, he says, I believe that the normalization associated with having an all-seeing eye on you 24-7 does not necessarily uh, lead to a perpetual state of stress or paranoia. We are not equipped to handle something like that, and those who do, do so not because of an external situation, but a chemical imbalance. It's the very basis for normalization. I'm thinking primarily of a study examining driving habits in the real world, where cameras were mounted in hundreds of people's cars for years to study how d- uh, distracted or careful drivers were. They all knew they were under observation and got paid to be in the study every year in case they needed a reminder that they were being watched. Uh, they soon behaved as though they were quite alone, uh, cavorting with ladies in the night in some cases, relieving themselves while driving, uh, juggling multiple phones and a cigarette. Some behavior may be curbed due to cameras as they are correlated with a decline in crime, but by and large they are ignored and don't cause significant uh, grief. Uh, there are obvious residents of London and New York uh, to cite two examples of cities almost entirely under CCTV observation who feel that their rights are being violated and who rail against the intrusion. But, uh, and I could be wrong here, there are probably people who would be railing against other government intrusion or civil rights violations uh, where there are no cameras at all. Uh, This is a complicated issue, and I'm not a state security apologist, but the mere presence of cameras everywhere or the uh, omnipotence of government about all Internet traffic doesn't really bug me nearly as much as their ability to act without a warrant. Keep up the great work. I look forward, uh, as always, to your next philosophical, psychological, biological, and technological musings. All right. Very good point here. Are we equipped to even deal with this idea that we're constantly being surveilled and perhaps under 
this construct that we are not. We just fold into it as the people who were being watched on these security cameras and their camera became normalized to the whole situation. So I think that's a, a good question. But I also wonder if it is part and parcel of the idea that's ingrained in all of us that when we get in the car, no matter if there's a camera watching us, we are in a private space. Hence all the nose pickers on the highway. Yes. Yeah, it's always kind of com- you, better than that is when you see somebody really dancing out to music, though. Yeah, I always like that. Uh, well, you know, here's a here's a, a little bit of listener mail. It comes in in response to our cubicle doom episode, which has some uh, crossover into the Panopticon area. Um, this one, uh, Louie writes in and says, hey, guys, I'm catching up on old episodes, and I thought I'd toss in my two cents about pink noise. Years ago, I worked at a startup web company, and we, unbeknownst to the workers, had a pink noise generator in the building. This all came to light in the summer when the temperatures were really hot, and the electric company was asking larger office buildings to shut down non-essential electrical devices. The pink noise makers were deemed to be such devices. I worked in a cubicle farm, and the change was instant and dramatic. While the pink noise was on, you couldn't hear a phone conversation for more than about a cubicle away. When the pink noise was off, you could clearly hear the same conversation from five cubes over. Uh, to this point, everyone assumed that we were always hearing the air handling system until our maintenance person pointed out that the tiny one-diameter one speakers in the ceiling spaced about 70 to 10 feet apart. Thank you for all the great content. Uh, out of about 30 different podcast series I listen to on a regular basis, you are my favorite. Thank you again, Louis. All right. Thanks, Louie. So that's nice because that angle is a benevolent panopticon that was looking out for them, piping in some pink noise. And in our new office space, I really wish that we had the same scenario. It would be kind of cool. Yeah. We yeah, need it. Certainly an example here, though, where uh, they they didn't uh, necessarily believe in God till God stopped believing in them. If you think of God as a pink noise machine. OK. <laughs> All right. Um here we have a quick uh, bit of uh, listener mail from Eric. Eric writes in uh, in response to our cute episode, The Science of Cute. He says, I wonder how many people react to too much cute or attempts at cute that fail. In Harry Potter, uh, Dolores Umbridge has de- uh, is described as a horrid person who displays many cute kittens in her rooms. The pictures were called horrid in the books, not cute. And Umbridge herself tries to sound and dress cute, but was grossly overweight and looked like a toad in the book. I wish you had talked about uh, what happens when people go for cute and end up in the opposite direction. Well, I think that's whole that whole uh, caricature thing, right? When mm-hmm. someone takes something to an extreme, then it becomes uh, the uncanny valley or horrific. And I think about that when I think about um, clowns. No offense to clowns out there, or even um, drag performance. Yeah. Because sometimes it is such a performance of the female model that it looks. Um, what is the word that I'm going for? Ghoulish. Ghoulish. Yeah. Maybe part of it is just our ability to, you know, to see those patterns and to realize something is not right. This uh, this individual or this thing, the cute is trying way mm-hmm. too hard, and therefore it must cover up some sort of malign uh, instinct at the heart of it. That's not really uh, that's not really a cute cartoon character. There must be some sort of horrible monster inside of it that's going to eat me. You know, I was thinking about that in the context of staring. Because we talked about this mm-hmm. um, inability to look away when we should is just our mind trying to square what it's seeing because it's saying this is this is outside of what I normally see. I can't stop looking. I need more data. Exactly. Yeah. It all comes back comes down to our uh, processing of the world around us and trying to realize what's a risk to us, what's not really a risk, and how we should react. So, can cute be awful? Yes, yes. it can. Oh, yes. All right, so there you have it. Some interesting listener mail to cap off what I think was a really interesting uh, insight into our, our orderly and disorderly lives. 
Yeah, and a comforting aspect of why a child is making an incredible mess for you to clean up and peas are splattering on your walls. Yeah, and the next time you're walking around at work and you notice, like I do, that some people have cubes that look like they've barely been moved into and other people look like they have lived there for centuries, uh, understand that uh, we need both types. We need uh, we need the, the creative energy of the chaos. We need the uh, we need the the uh, the refining order of that neat space as well. All of it comes together, and it's it has survived evolution for a reason. Right, and we should flip between those spaces so we have a nice balanced perspective. There you go. All righty. All right, you want to check out our blog post. You want to check out all these podcast episodes that we're talking about, including ones that you will not find on iTunes. Uh, you need to go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's our mothership. That's our main homepage. You will find, the, again, the blogs, the videos, uh, the, the podcasts, uh, all sorts of new content, as well as links out to all of our social media sites. You can find us on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Google+. We're on YouTube as Mind Stuff Show. Uh, there's a SoundCloud account. If you're into that, you can find episodes there. Uh, just have at it. Yep, and if you strongly identify with Muppet, let us know which Muppet that is, and you can do so at BlowTheMindAtDiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.